The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. From lamb's blood transfused into human veins, to tooth replacements and new noses crafted from forearm skin, the story of transplant surgery is full of surprises. I spoke to Paul Craddock, the author of a new book on the subject, Spare Parts, to find out more. Please be aware that our conversation includes details of some fairly grisly medical procedures and also references to animal cruelty. So Spare Parts offers a surprising history of transplant surgery. And I think it's fair to say that some of the stories in this book are indeed very surprising. So how far back can we trace this story? How far back does the practice of transplanting go? Well, first, thanks for having me, Ellie. It's lovely um, to be on. Um, Well, that was the first major surprise for me, actually, was how far back transplant surgery goes. Because we, we, we think about it as a 20th century invention. Mm. We think about it in terms of maybe a race to transplant the human heart, Christian Bernard in the 1960s, 1967. And that's a very, very strong narrative. And it's strong for, well, for many reasons. One, it's, it's one of those really arresting post-war stories of... Um, very intelligent, macho men, which is sort of going out of fashion now, thankfully. Mm. Um, but also it's because in the 60s, that was the time when um, surgeons and doctors and hospitals themselves started to get savvy about media and started to curate mm. their own image. Um, so when you first come to the subject of transplant, your views about it are sort of culturally preset, as it were. Organ transplants go back, you can say, to the turn of the 20th century. Um, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a bit. But if you think about transplant surgery as a transaction between bodies, or a transaction even between two places on the same body, then you can take it back as far as ancient India. Mm. And that's to the Sashruta Samhita, which is an ancient Ayurvedic surgical text, which covered things like caesarean sections as well. And it was written in the 6th century, 
And things in that text were already considered traditional at that point. So, you know, transplant surgery, the first reference to it is in that text, the 6th century, but it's a likely far, far older procedure. But what was more surprising than its age to me, even more surprising, is where it comes from. It's a direct transposition, or it seems to be a direct transposition of plant grafting. You know, when when in horticulture you take a a couple of pear trees, a couple of apple trees, and you graft one branch, uh, from a branch from one tree to um, another tree to increase its yield. It's a simple matter of basically making an incision in bark and making an incision in another piece of bark and putting those two open wounds together, then tying them, tying them off, and then over time they heal and they become one body, one tree. And it's exactly the same process with skin grafting. And in fact, when when skin grafting, well, skin grafting disappeared out of the records for many centuries and started to appear again in the in the 15th century. But in, in the 16th century, you have the story of um, Leonardo Fioravanti, who is, he uh, he was a renegade, quite a, quite a, um, an unpredictable renegade, very colorful surgeon. And he, um, he stole the secret of skin grafting from um, a family of surgeons in Tropea, in Calabria, uh, who were practicing, who'd been practicing it for generations as a, as a secret sort of process, you know, to, 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 to um, fix the noses, of, mainly, of people who have lost them in duels or in fights or through war or through syphilis. When he saw that operation being carried out, he referred to it as the agriculture of the body, or the farming of men. So he wrote about it in a few different places. So it really just, um, I suppose, hammered home this relationship between human bodily processes and plant bodily processes. Mm-hmm. And that was that was really surprising. Before we go into the, the 16th century and onwards, when this story really kicks off, this is, of course, your book is a is a cultural history of transplants as much as a medical history. And one of the things I was really intrigued by was that the way that you uncovered myths about transplants and what they kind of tell us about ideas about human identity. Could you share some of those with us? Well, one of the myths that comes up most often, I'd say, is that of Jason of the Argonauts. And, I mean, most people will know the basis of that story, you know, um, Jason goes to claim the Golden Fleece. He takes the Fleece and his new wife back home to Thessaly. And when he and his um, men get there, there's a big celebration. And all the people, all the, all the sailors' fathers come out and cheer their boys and whatnot. Apart from Jason's father, who's too old and feeble. Um... And Jason's upset by this, and he says um, to his new wife, "Could you, would you mind taking some, you've used your magic before, would you mind taking some of my life and giving it to my father? And she was touched mm-hmm. by this, um, and she said, no, I won't do that, but I'll, I'll make him young by other means. So Jason's father is carried out and placed onto this bed of herbs, and Medea performs another magic uh, trick, uh, and 
Part of that involves bleeding Jason's father. And as his blood trickles out, she treats it with um, some some magical herbs that she's gathered from around the, um, the, the kingdom. And then she transfuses that back into his body. Now, in Oxford, in the 1640s, a man called Francis Potter, who was friends with William Harvey, the man who discovered, as they say, um, blood circulation. He was thinking about this story, this Jason of the Argonauts story, and how Medea had taken um, blood and rejuvenated the blood and put it back into the body, and Jason's father was rejuvenated. He, he became um, younger, his, his, his face lost its wrinkles, his hair became black again, and he lost his stoop, etc. And he thought, well, perhaps... This is possible. Perhaps this does work. So he set about trying to trying to make it work. And he was the first person to really um, think that this this connection between blood and life could have a medical meaning. And it's a connection, of course. That is that's it's been in culture in in I think probably most cultures um, for time immemorial. And he was the first person to sort of think that this connection could be um, leveraged. That idea of uh, of blood rejuvenating somebody and, and making them younger, not just making them more well, is interesting because mm. today we think of transplants purely as a way to save lives or, or really dramatically improve mm. people's quality of life. But has that always been the only motivation between uh, behind transplants, or have people thought that they might be able to be used for other means as well? Ah, uh, well, it's only very recently that people thought that a transplant could or even should save a life. That's that story is of a, ni- a, ni- a story of nineteenth-century blood transfusion. The first time blood was transfused between two people. Before that, transplant surgery was not used at all. To save lives. It was used either as a cosmetic procedure when people, when some people criticize the surgeons of, uh, for playing God, it was used to change, well, to make people younger, as we've just discussed, but also to change their personality. So some mm. of the first blood donors were lambs. And that's because they were reputedly, because they're not, if you go near them, they actually Run, run off, don't they? But <laughs> lambs are reputedly calm and placid, um, and it was felt that if you ha- if you had a transfusion of lamb's blood, you could calm uh, a frantic spirit. So it would be used to treat insanity. So what does that tell us about ideas about the connections between? essentially like the the essence of humanity, your personality, as it were, your soul, however you want to put it and your body, did people see these things as intertwined more than we might do today? I think up until roughly the of course, it's all these things, historical things are always matters of processes, there no, no great switch between one way of seeing things and another. But until about the 18th century, you have this idea that people were sort of immutable souls. Their soul, their essence was just that. It was an essence, a fundamental um, immutable, indivisible essence. So that allowed, you know, things like blood transfusion to think about how 
essences could be transferred. And if you make if you make connections between bodies, then you break down boundaries that really shouldn't be broken down. And that's that's also where the myths come in, where you have uh, the myths of Ovid warning almost that if you break down these boundaries, then the world is no longer stable and you can transform it to something else. And, and people actually thought that if you had a transfusion of lamb's blood, you would transform into a sheep. You start growing well and bleating. Now that changes around the 18th century to a more modern idea of the self, which is the self as a composition. We become mm. individuals. And that's a, through a process of gathering experiences, having experiences thrust upon us, uh, but also through buying things and acquiring things. So we start to associate ourselves with our possessions for the first time. And when it comes to transplant surgery in that period, that that shows up in the shape of tooth transplants. If you were wealthy enough and you valued your um, smile enough, you could buy the tooth of a poor child. And this is kind of an, I think this is a kind of an analogue to the modern sort of organ trafficking. Um, leading on from that, let's talk a little bit about tooth transplants. Because I think a lot of people, when they think of transplants, they think of internal organ transplants primarily. And they'll say, tooth transplants? What? Um, what can you tell us about this, the trade in teeth and and the scientific ideas behind it? Tooth transplants have scientific origins, they have cultural origins, and they're, they're very much intermingled. The scientific origins are in, well, both in this sense of a body of spare parts, I suppose, this, this idea that body parts can be swapped. The concept of a machine body, of a body of spare parts, is part of the scientific dimension of transplanting teeth. But the main component of that science i would say if you if you can uh, if you if you could phrase it like that is vitalism this idea that there is uh, that life is not some not necessarily some kind of animistic principle some kind of soul but it, it could be um in the 18th century it could be a physical principle it could be a property a particle and that started out as something in the nerves. You had this dialogue around nervousness and nervous diseases, um, but it was based on the idea that life itself was something in the nerves and it, it, it went through your body via the nerves. A distinct modification of that theory came about with John Hunter, who's one of the most famous uh, surgeons ever, actually, um, but certainly one of the most significant of the 18th century. His greatest contribution to the science behind the tooth transplant was to think that life was a particle inside the blood. He actually looked, he had a, a vast collection of specimens, uh, human, animal, mineral, plant, and he scoured them all for something that they all that everything, every living creature, not for minerals, <laughs> but every living creature has in common. And also he noticed that when um, when you cut 
the nerves of a body part. It loses um, it loses sensation, but it doesn't lose life. It's still alive. So it, the, this vital principle couldn't be in the nerves. It has to... There's something in the blood because blood is the only thing or some circulating fluid is the only thing that every living thing seems to share or seemed to, to share in his experience. Uh, so he thought that if this principle is responsible for life, could you then engineer a situation where you transplant that principle from a living body to a dead part? Mm. And he, he, he experimented on cockerels. He uh, took a spur from one and um, transplanted it into a hen's comb. So Hunter also transplanted a human tooth in a, into a cockerel's comb, is that correct? He did, why, yes. Why did he do that? So when Hunter was stationed as a surgeon on Belle Isle, Belle Isle, he, um, he collected specimens to uh, add to his collection back in London, and he collected a lot of lizards' tails because he noticed that when um, lizards, lizards lose their tails, when you can cut them off and they can grow back, so there's this sort of regeneration happening and when he got back to london he for reasons of for many reasons he fell out with his brother and he had no money he went to work with a dentist called james spence and there he he noticed the fangs of the teeth that he kept seeing being pulled out and they look quite like lizard's tails and that sort of mental fidget led him to led him to to think, well, maybe humans also have this property of regeneration. And applying that to this notion of a vital principle, this idea of life itself inside mm -hmm. the blood, um, well, that led him to transplant a human tooth from, a, in, in um, quotation marks, a, a volunteer. It led him to transplant that tooth, a volunteer's tooth, into a cockerel's comb. And it didn't really work, but he <laughs> it looked to him like it it had formed a connection. Did tooth transplanting ever really work, or was it always a bit of an illusion? It seems to have. There are reports of it having worked, um, sometimes for a couple of years. I mean, many times it, it, of course, didn't. And sometimes the recipient would become infected. In fact, that's um, that's why tooth transplants went out of fashion. I don't think they were officially banned. Uh, and I've seen them actually in, in a dental textbook from 1919, that late. Uh, but the last one I've ever, I've ever read of, of being performed was 1838, I think it was, in Buffalo, in upstate New York. Um, but they went out of fashion around the turn of the 19th century because, not because they were... Um, responsible for ruining the faces of poor children, uh, but because the wealthy recipients started to get infections and syphilis and they started, some started to die. So then it sort of petered out. And even Hunter himself came, came out against the operation at that time. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. It's a sort of what we're doing now, isn't it? If we're using plant structures for their inherent vascular networks, 
to plug holes in human hearts and to transplant into us. That's, I, I really like the beauty of that. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. Earn up to 3% daily cash back on every purchase every day. Then grow it at 4.50% annual percentage yield when you open a savings account with Apple Card. Visit apple.co forward slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card subject to credit approval. Savings available to Apple Card owners subject to eligibility. Savings accounts provided by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, member FDIC. Terms apply. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. So you've spoken about teeth being taken from probably unwilling volunteers, poor volunteers. You've well, spoken desperate about volunteers. Desperate know. volunteers. Mm-hmm. You've spoken about... Um, animals being involved in these experiments and there's lots of stories of decapitated dogs mm, yeah, it's quite gory. lambs it's quite gory and i wanted to just ask you about the some of the ethical um issues that surgeons ran into in the history of transplant surgery or often just simply ran over and ignored oh at every stage <laughs> well from the very beginning you had this this idea of, of of playing God, should you... Well, one, one ethical consideration was, are you playing God by changing um, the face of somebody who's supposedly designed by God? Are you mm. damning them to a life of monsterhood? So that's the first one. When you get to blood transfusions, um, of course, for many ethical dilemmas <laughs> with with um, animal experimentation in general, which um, some people came out, you know, Samuel Pepys didn't like um, animal experimentation very much. Um, Robert Boyle, he didn't mind it, didn't seem to mind it at all. Although he, he um, I, say, I, I remember saying of a book that he only ever drowned one kitten and that's that was his soft spot. That really. was his line. Yeah, yeah, that was his line. <laughs> Drowning one kitten, fine. But he thought he looked at the second one and he thought, no, this is the words he used were was too much. <laughs> Which I would agree with. Um But in when it comes to blood transfusion, the ethical dilemma, the big one, is about well, what we've been speaking about, which is um changing someone's soul. Mm. So one of the French um 
um, people who, one of the French physicians who objected to just transfusion uh, vehemently was called um, Guillaume Lamy. Apologize for my French pronunciation. Um, and he felt that every animal had a kind of a, a, a particle, sort of like a vital principle, um, but but that particle contained within it the character of that person or that being. Mm-hmm. So that's where the fears of turning into a sheep <laughs> come from. That's one of the um, origins of that. But if you if you give your blood to someone else, how, are you then transferring some of your personality to them, maybe? That's mm-hmm. another question. Mm-hmm. And of course, the ethical dilemmas with um, body shopping and Tooth transplants are, are quite quite clear, really. There's a a sense of of selling selling body parts that well, one don't belong to you, and two are effectively coerced, really, from people mm. who well, from children. I think well, coming to this fresh, there are a lot of I think it's fair to say grisly and often mm. quite creepy and macabre experiments that you that you chronicle as part of the the process to try and develop this science. What were some of of the most audacious that people might be surprised by? Oh, God. The most audacious experiment in the history of transplant surgery. I think it's probably, for me, a blood transfusion that happened in the 1670s in France um, between a madman called Antoine... Mora and a sheep. And there's uh, which this... Which way round was it going here? Sheep into man. Okay. <laughs> and he was... Oh, it was, it was horrible the way it's described. Uh, but they describe this sheep just in such a high state of panic and just screaming and, this, and, a, and a butcher punching it into submission and tying it into a chair. It's horrible, it's awful. And then the same happens when they drag this madman. And again, he's screaming and he's making incoherent sounds. And he's saying, I'm not mad or or whatever. You know, he's he's really making a a big din, (laughs) as we say up north. And um, he's tied into this chair as well. And it goes into such detail about freeing a vessel in the arm of the sheep, freeing one in the arm of the man and connecting them with a tube, a, a silver pipe. And then this blood sort of uh, making its way from the sheep into the man. And it's, 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 horrible, to, it's horrible to read. So, so the idea in that experiment was to cure the man of his, of his madness. And it seemed to work actually um because you can t- yes it seemed to work you can you can take a little bit you can take i can take a little bit of animal blood or blood that's incompatible not much but you can take a bit and let's face it the technology is is primitive the the um tubes would get clogged up not much would really make its way into the man some would though and it would be enough to make him have a fit quite a severe fit but at the end of that fit, you'd be too tired to act mad. So it looks like it works. And then mm. he becomes mad again <laughs> and he needs 
a second transfusion. And eventually he he died. I think it was his, um, it wasn't from transfusion he died, though. It was from his wife poisoned him with arsenic. Because he, he was he was beating his wife and roaming around Paris naked, setting fire to things. Another of the specific uh, procedures that I wanted to ask you about was something you mentioned earlier on, uh, briefly, about 16th century uh, rhinoplasties, nose jobs. Uh, because the first time that I learned how this was done, my mind was absolutely blown. So what can you tell us about the early techniques that were used to to create new noses for people who'd lost them via uh, syphilis or maybe in jewels? Mm. Well, there were two techniques. One of them um, was an in, the Indian technique from the Sushruta Samhita, um, and that was taking skin from the forehead. So essentially what you would do is you would, you would make a, a, a model of the nose, maybe out of wax, of the nose that you wanted to you know, the shape you wanted. And you would then flatten it onto the patient's forehead and cut around that mould as if it was a kind of a flap. And then you'd pull away that flap. So you'd you'd make incisions around that. Um, well, what would... Yeah, it is a flap. You'd pull that away from the forehead, make incisions around the nose area, you know, where you would want it to adhere, and then you would form it over the mould. And those wounds that you connected would heal. The the Italian method, so by the, by the 16th century, it you had a, a method where you do the same thing, but with um, skin from the uh, bicep. So you would strap your arm to the top of your head, therefore leaving a flap of skin Connected to your arm, but yes. also connected to your face. Is yes. that right? So you'd have to have a bridge uh, to a part of the body that had blood, you know, that can supply it with blood. So in the Indian method, it's, it's the bridge of the nose um, and it's turned, it's sort of flipped around. With the Italian method, it's your arm. Very uncomfortable. On the promotional page for your book, there is a question, which is, what role did a sausage skin and an enamel bath play in making kidney transplants a reality? Because I need to know, what role did they play? Well, kidney dialysis emerged in occupied Nazi Netherlands. And it was a ma- with a man called Willem Kolf. And he, um, it's, it's a long and involved story about him, but um, I'll try to just hit the sort of main parts to get to the sausage skin as quick as possible. Mm-hmm. So Willem Kolf met up with a professor uh, called Robert Brinkman, who in a previous life um, purified fruit juices using cellophane. And cellophane was and is used as a sausage skin. And thinking about its qualities of, you know, its, its ability to purify fruit juices, um, Kolf applied that to some of the conditions he'd seen in his hospital um, with kidney patients with kidney failure. The problem with uh, kidney um, failure is that the blood fills with urea, and it's a very, very painful process. You lose your eyesight, it's, your skin starts to unbelievably itch as the urea crystals push themselves up out of, out of your skin, trying to get rid of it any way it can. Uh, the usual it's the usual job of the kidneys to get rid of it but if they failed then that's when you get these terrible consequences and he thought that if 
he could purify the blood in the same way Brinkman purified fruit juices. That would mean that the kidneys could, in, in effect, have a chance to restart themselves. So the first experiment he did was to fill a cellophane sausage skin with his own blood and to add a bit of urea to that blood. And then he sloshed that around in a bath of water and he had no great hopes for this succeeding, but it turned out actually when he tested his blood, almost all of the urea had gone through the cellophane. So this was an effective way to clean the blood. I mean, many, many mechanical problems um, presented themselves, not least the one of clot, blood clotting, which is, you know, has been a part of the problem of moving around blood um, since, since the first, um, first time that happened in the, in the 17th century. Um, but also getting the blood back into the patient afterwards when it's been cleaned, that was a problem. Um, but this first machine that he, he created to try to get around all those problems was an assemblage of sausage skins, an enamel bath, and the frame of a shot-down German aircraft. And it's a real, for me, it's a real testament to the... In ingenuity, I suppose, um, that is, you know, you're forced, forced to um, embrace in desperate situations when, like when you're occupied by Nazi forces. Yeah, I think that um, if anything, this book is a testament, as you say, to ingenuity, sometimes misplaced, sometimes successful. So who were some of the other key figures that really um, thought outside the box to push transplant surgery forward? Well, one of the key figures who, and the one I am most inspired by, is Marianne Leroudier, who is, or was, uh, an, a famous French embroiderer. And she's, she's not, um, she, she probably didn't um, realise, actually, that she contributed. But I've done some, I did some original peer-reviewed research um, that has revealed uh, the potential that she has quite significantly. So... It was at the beginning of the 20th century, 1900-1901, when two major advances happened to, to bring transplant into the modern world. And this is actually the place where most people, most surgeons would think transplant surgery begins. So in 1900, because you had, first you had blood, um, blood typing that was conceived around that time. But the 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 other one is Something called, it's a procedure called vascular anastomosis. And that just means uh, sewing together blood vessels, basically. So if you can sew together blood vessels, you can sew organs into bodies. So transplant surgery becomes conceivable. Bypass operations become conceivable. Trauma surgery becomes, becomes conceivable. In fact, the whole field of vascular surgery arises from that. Now, the story, as it's usually told, is that a man called Alexi Carell perfected this technique in 1901 after seeing the assassination of the French president about a decade or so earlier. Now, he, he of course, he had a, a lot to do with it. <laughs> in fact, he, 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 did, he did make the innovation and he won a Nobel Prize for it as well. Um, but what... The, the part of his story that he's never never seems to be covered is that he was taught by 
a woman called Marianne Leroudier. Now, Marianne Leroudier is or was a very famous um, French embroiderer. She was responsible for the gold lace embroidery of the Paris opera curtains. Her work won awards and medals all over the world. So she's a very, very, very strange teacher for a surgeon to, to go to. Uh, and, and the way that's been, that's been interpreted in most history, in fact, in all of the histories that I've read, is that he was such a genius that he needed that kind of person to teach him because a normal seamstress is no good <laughs> for someone of his caliber. And I suppose, for, you know, for us, there might be some um, something in that, but the question then arises, what could she have taught him that no one else could have taught him? So I actually did a, a piece of work um, with an embroiderer called Fleur Oaks. Together, we, we reenacted a technique that Carell apparently excelled at, and that was to put stitches into a cigarette paper. And a cigarette paper was used because it was flimsy. It resembled material, on a material level, it resembled an artery. It's easily terrible. So we decided to look at Leroudier's work, which you can find in the Museum of Tissues in Lyon, and look at Carell's exercise and to see what aspects of that exercise were represented in Leroudier's work. And it turns out that quite a lot of it is. So there are things like um, working one-handed, for instance. You have to do that inside of a body. Um, but a, a, a domestic seamstress wouldn't be able to do that. But Leroudier working on these massive curtains and copes for um, the Vatican, <laughs> you know, she would need to work one-handed. She would need, in order to manage the gold thread, she would need to have extra techniques to place that thread where she wanted it to go. Uh, so, in fact, there were quite a few different techniques that were not just to do with achieving a certain intricacy, which is what he he claimed he was you know, very, very good at and what he was clearly good at, to do with navigating these materials that an, an ordinary seamstress would have no experience and no need to navigate. So these techniques... I suggest, um, are the ones that Carell might have picked up from Leroudier. So I, I really think that we hold Carell up to be this genius, this great man. In fact, he holds himself very high. In fact, he was a eugenicist and a horrible man uh, towards the end. Uh, but he holds himself up as this great man, this, and he's, he's created this mythology around himself. But he doesn't recognize where those techniques come from. He doesn't recognize that they come from the, the female-dominated um, practice of, of decorative embroidery. And he doesn't recognize Marianne Leroudier as anything but a footnote in his career, someone he consulted because he was too good for anybody else. So Leroudier, for that reason, is, the, is for me the most inspiring figure in the book. And, and it's the least gory story. <laughs> in the conclusion of the book, you look at the future of transplants, which is, which is fascinating in itself. What do you see coming next? So when it comes to the future of, of transplant surgery... One of the most inspiring 
um, experiments, inspiring directions for me is to do with uh, bioengineering and it's to do with stem cells and and populating um, scaffolds with someone's own cells. So you don't need to have drugs for rejection and things like that. Um, one story in particular sticks out for me, and that's the story of the spinach heart. And that refers to an experiment done by, or a set of experiments done by a man called um, Dr. Joshua Gerschlag. At, he was at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. Uh, he's now at Harvard. And basically what that is, it's uh, he, he dissolves the cells of a spinach leaf in detergent. So you're left with just a collagen frame. So it's a, just sort of a white ghostly impression of a spinach leaf. And then he populated that leaf with human heart cells. And that's, that's the reason behind that is because 3D printers can't yet print uh, capillaries and structures in the body that are so small. You know, they don't have the resolution yet for that. I mean, that's, uh, some people think that's maybe 10, 20 years down the line when we can print those kind of structures. But for now, we have the plant world. <laughs> and the, the, the advantage of a spinach heart, if you will, is not to, you can't replace the heart with a spinach leaf, but you can plug a hole with that kind of technology. And it's not, it's not found a clinical application yet. But I find that quite, quite um, lovely, actually, because he's also using now at the moment, he's using that technology to look at skin, growing skin for skin grafting, which kind of brings us around into a very, you know, very nice circle to what we were talking about before, because transplant surgery started with this connection between humans and plants and the physiological similarity and what that meant in terms of, you know, transposing processes of grafting from the plant world to the um, human world. It's a sort of what we're doing now, isn't it? If we're using plant structures for their inherent vascular networks to plug holes in human hearts and to transplant into us, that's, I, I really like the beauty of that. That was Paul Craddock. His book, Spare Parts, A Surprising History of Transplants, is on sale now, published by Fig Tree. You can find a link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in tomorrow when Neil Faulkner will be speaking about his new book, Empire and Jihad, 